Stop it. Stop that. Okay. <laughs> not not you, Peter. Uh, no. You got a cat in the room? No, no. I my um my uh, our cat died last year. Our, oh no. Year before so last. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we uh, we're still um, back and forth it's like we're going to get a cat this week. Oh no, we're going to nah, I don't know. <laughs> no, we'll, one of us is we want to get a time when both of us will be home for quite like uh, at least a week. Uh, so that yeah. we can watch it the whole time, get it used to us being here, yeah. all that. And it's either I'm gone, Sigrid's gone. It's always something. So, it's an important relationship. You want to start it right. Yeah. Oh, I know you don't want me to play the anti-ETH opening for the show, do you? <laughs> <laughs> have you heard it? Um, you have anything by the Blue Oyster Cult? <laughs> that for an open no I've I've got three intros one where that has a little piece of an old lone ranger thing where where one of the characters says Whoa. my name old Ra no. lone ranger tv show one is my original one and one is um is John Keel Jacques Vallée Mac Tonys and um William S Burroughs and that's the oh, anti ETH one yes that's I I'd go with that. I mean, heck, I'm not married to anything. Uh, <laughs> that's that's an all star lineup. That's for sure. Okay, I'll I'll turn up the uh, the uh, speakers here so you can hear what the uh, the Radio Mysterioso and generally considered the anti ETH uh, opening sounds like. Here we go. Wow. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need. To go through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology, we're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that, the, um, that, this, that this phenomenon is... Um, Comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that, uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio Mysterioso.
Okay, let's fade that down quickly. Still there, Peter? I am. Oh, okay, excellent. Uh, you can't beat the classics. That is just such a wonderful riff. <laughs> I've been using the same one. I don't know how long I've been using that. 15 years? Maybe longer? Hey, if something works, stick with it. Well, I had, uh, during the Halloween show this last year, I had a friend on from Canada, my friend Courtney, and I said, well, I have that... Uh, that Criswell opening, basically because it's from Plan 9 from Outer Space, which yeah. is um, one of my favorite movies ever. And also, if you've seen yeah. the Ed Wood movie with Johnny Depp, that is exactly, yeah. How, yeah, exactly how I felt about it. He played Ed Wood exactly the way I always so, thought of Ed Wood. It was, I couldn't agree with you more. It was so sweet and so self-effacing. Yeah. And so um, it was perfect. Yeah, and he the the thing about Ed Wood is I think he had a clue that he might have been like producing shit but he didn't <laughs> he didn't care as long as what he was doing got out the way there the way he wanted it to he kind of yeah. didn't care if it had some little rough edges on it as he probably thought it was <laughs> and that's kind of how i feel about my show and I, I when i had diana pasolka on at the beginning um dr diana pasolka at the, at the beginning a few weeks ago i said this show is is cultivates a an aura of studied incompetence which i think <laughs> which is how, nice. I think, how i think i want to think of my my program and it covers up for a lot of mistakes and BS. <laughs> if you're going to have incompetence, let it be studied. Yes. <laughs> Most definitely. Uh, anybody listening to this show probably knows who Peter is. Um, uh, do, do you want to be a, give your curriculum vitae and, and put in things you want to put in instead of anything I might remember? No, you put in what you remember, and I'll make up some stuff when I come on. Okay, uh, most famously known as the co-author of Left at Eastgate, which is, I guess, no longer in publication now. That is correct, as of last week. Uh-huh. Uh, also, uh, I guess you've been doing, he's uh, known as a researcher on the James Forrestal story, which I saw you give a lecture on at the Crash Retrieval Conference in 2006, I believe it is, and you're doing mm -hmm. an interview with Ryan Sprague right now about that, specifically on Somewhere in the Skies, uh, I guess you're, you've done or are going to do uh, part two, because there's a part one posted. Right. Uh, let's see. The only other thing I can recall about Peter besides, oh, um, he was the, what were you, publicity director for the Roswell Festival for quite a while? I, I worked as liaison um, between the, gov the mayor's office of Roswell and Governor Richard's uh, Richardson's office for several years um, and also helped coordinate the conference there. <laughs> and the other thing I know about Peter and another reason we're friends uh, oh well, there's the, a there's a, a third or fourth or fifth reason is that he is a fan and um, uh, scholar of Wilhelm Reich's work, and finally is because he is the best storyteller I've ever heard. Oh, thank you. Problem almost <laughs> uh, almost as good or equal or maybe better than uh, Gene Shepard, who is my favorite radio storyteller oh. ever. That's such a compliment, um, and I mean it. I was one of those kids who grew up with a transistor radio and a flashlight, and at nighttime, good night, Mom and Dad, I would go into my world under the covers with my comic books and listening to Gene Shepard tell me stories about his childhood. He was an amazing storyteller. And uh, I... I've never been able to talk to anybody on these shows about Gene Shepard. Nobody knows who he is. 
I I don't know whether he was a regional phenomena or whether you were introduced to him like so many people um, through the wonderful movie um, uh, A Christmas Story. But he was a local uh, talk disc jockey, not even a disc jockey. He would tell stories um, yeah, that's all on his show at night. And I'm I, I know it was broadcast here in the Northeast. I don't know if it was syndicated um, to other parts of the country, but um, he was the best. And again, for many people, the way that you know him, uh, he is the writer uh, of that wonderful movie, A Christmas Story. And he has a small cameo in it when he appears. But, yeah, right. that is him storytelling for sure. Yeah, I uh, I was introduced to his stuff um when he died in 1999 there was mm. a special on NPR and a lot oh, of people who were sakes. yeah were influenced by him um wow. I think Harry Shearer I think I think Harry Shearer actually put the show together um Lovely. he was featured in it quite a bit um uh, I'm not sure if uh, Jerry Seinfeld was in it I think one of his kids names is Shepard because of Gene Shepard Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um but uh th- what they did was take excerpts from some of his best shows and just play them. I I I was smitten. Uh. And at that point there was no real there wasn't an internet as the way we know it now. I actually found yeah. um through a like a uh BBS or a, or a, some sort of list I found other people that were interested and they had a uh trading um uh, CD trading uh, thing going on in the mail. I wrote to wow. one of them and they sent me a stack of like 20 CDs, 20 or 30 mm. CDs full of old MP3s of Gene Shepard shows. And um, I love it. Yeah. I don't think they were MP3s. They were just straight out because there were so many discs because yeah. they were just, they were straight, you know, D- uh, CDs of yeah. recordings of his shows. So that's the first, you know, now you can go online and you can get everything that was ever recorded. Oh, sure, sure. You've reminded me, Greg, that um, when I first started uh, my friendship with Bud Hopkins in the 1970s, before he had really begun his his UFO related work in earnest and uh, before he had published his first book, one of the things that we realized we had in common, besides being New York artists with an interest in this subject, was that um, we were both absolutely crazy about Bob and Ray, who were contemporaries ah. of Gene Shepard, and Bud had ever so many audio cassettes that he'd record off the air back in the day yeah. of them just doing their thing. And for any of your listeners who do not know who Bob and Ray are, I almost feel jealous because <laughs> if you are of the right temperament, um, you are you are about to walk into a world of endless hours of goofball deadpan humor between two absolute masters. Um, Chris Elliott, the great comic actor, right. the son of um, Bob Elliott of mm-hmm. Bob and Ray, and um, Chris's daughter, uh, Abby, uh, who was on uh, Saturday Night Live for uh, some time, uh, follows the tradition. But um, Bob and Ray were very much in the tradition of, of Gene Shepard. It's just that Gene would riff on his childhood where Bob and Ray would create stories that to this day completely cracked me up. I, I think between them, they created over 200 characters to tell their goofy stories through. 
and um, they they have aged well. They have aged well. They will still crack you up. Yeah, I I, I was thinking when you're describing them, the first thing that came to mind is um, they were sort of like one of a direct line can be drawn to um, the onion. Yeah, from Bob and Ray in a lot of ways. Totally deadpan. I, I'm immediately remembering a skit where uh, a guy um, wants to save money on pencils. And so he <laughs> buys a pencil making machine for, I think, $60,000. Yeah. And he goes through the litany of how it works and how many pencils he really will have to sell to pay off the machine. <laughs> and, and part of the humor was just droning on and on in the most inane way imaginable. And the uh, uh, the foil uh, doing their best to get through it. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of humor. It's it's very innocent. Um, it's not blue, as they say. It's just an awful lot of fun and incredibly original. I'm glad we kind of starting off on this note. Very nostalgic. And, you know, what's funny is funny and stands the test of time. Yeah. Well, well as you know on this show, Peter, and why I like having uh... – Everybody I know in the shows, we can talk about anything, and I don't really particularly care <laughs> where the conversation goes. I was going to ask you if you have you read a book called Oh, what's it called? Oh, damn it! It's on. It's um, oh god! It's a history of American humor from um, before vaudeville, uh, just before vaudeville, or it, it picks up probably right at the turn of the twentieth century, all the way Ooh. up to now. Um, I think I'm- Bob and Ray are in it. Um, I would hope so. It's very interesting to see the development. You know, it follows the Marx Brothers all the way through. It follows, yeah. You know, it follows. Um, you know what Woody Allen did, what what um, what uh, Lenny Bruce did, what and but more people that you've never heard of or what it was like to ah. work with them. You know what what what? How did Sid Caesar become famous? What did he do? What kind of fights did oh, he get in God. with you know with censors and people of the network? Um, yeah. You know, uh, a Jack Parr was a very strange person. I never knew this. Yeah. He had a very strange sense of humor. I wasn't yeah. really uh, alive when he was on, or at least yeah. aware. And yeah. I started watching old videos of Jack Parr. It's like, how did he get so famous? He's a weirdo. Yes. Um, and then at yes. one point, he, the, the censors got mad because he'd said something that they said sounded um, uh, like toilet humor or something. And he, he, and he said, I'm not going to go back on the show until you uh, let me explain what happened, that you censored me. And they said, okay. And he did that. And I think they did something else immediately right away to piss him off. And the next show, he walked off in the middle of the show. He did his he, – not in the middle of the show. He came out and did his monologue, which he um, – the, the the thing of having – he was the first Tonight Show host. That's right. That's the thing right. of having the monologue and the way the things were set up and the band he and all that. He created that. He created that. And people don't yeah. realize that. But right nope. after – in the middle of his monologue, he said, these people suck. And I, I quit and he walked off. <laughs> I, I remember um, – I, I didn't read that book, but you've reminded me PBS did an outstanding series on um, the history of television comedy. It doesn't go back as far, obviously, as the book, but uh, the evolution of what makes us laugh uh, is as fascinating as the times we live in. Uh, W.C. Fields' amazing definition of humor mm-hmm. – well, comedy – was and again he's pretty draconian uh comedy is tragedy happening to someone else yeah or plus time i can't remember who said that yeah. one <laughs> that same, it's called yes. it's called the comedians um 
Ah. Yeah, Drunk Steve Scoundrels in the History of American Comedy by uh, uh, Cliff. Right up our alley. Yes, Cliff, Cliff Nesterhoff. So look that up on uh, Amazon. It's, it's an amazing book. I mean, if you're interested in humor like I am and the history of it, um, and stand up and where stand up came from and how it started. You know, it talks about the Borscht Belt. It talks about the mafia and how they were all into it and how they treated the comedians and how they all moved to Vegas because, you know, the vice were coming down on them and really Whoa. interesting stuff. One of the great yeah. scenes in the book, not, not to belabor the point was, yeah. um, when the comedians started performing in Vegas was re- that Renaissance, not Renaissance, but that the genesis of that was right when the Nevada test site was going. Right. And he said people would be you know, doing their bit, and then suddenly the whole place would shake <laughs> because ah, they were doing nice a bomb test. memory. Nice. Yeah. Whoa. And, and you know, it became a test of these comedians. Like, how could you follow up a bomb blast? You know, I think the first time it happened, or essentially the first time it happened, whoever was performing, I can't, somebody whose name is lost to the sands of time, said... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the whole place is shaking, and the you know the chandelier is going, and all the all the cups are ra- the, the, the glassware is rattling, and people are all stopped, and it goes totally silent. And the guy said, "What was that?" And then he goes right on with his his thing, and that that brought down the house because you know it's like, what the hell is he going to do for you know, what is he supposed to say at that moment? Yeah, but just the uh-huh. way he said it probably is like, oh, what was that? <laughs> it was like it was like like it was nothing. It was atomic bomb, you know. And, and so yeah, it, it interrupted many a uh, many a uh, com- comedy routine in Vegas in the early days. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, I've I've had shows. Uh, I've had people on shows, and all we did was play comedy records and discuss what we thought was funny and why. Oh, nice. That is, you know, just that phrase alone, comedy record, has totally disappeared from our lexicon, except for those who are getting back into vinyl and connecting with some of those classic stand-up records. Yeah. And I, I collected those when I was, when I was a young child. Um, Uh, ah. and I listened to, I listened very carefully to, you know, (laughs) Cheech and Chong and George Carlin and, and, um, uh, God, who else? Woody Allen. I found a Woody Allen stand-up record when I was like 13. Jeez. And listened to that very carefully. And, uh, and I've said this on the show before, and you probably know this already, but uh, the guy who's clueless interviewing Alan sometime in the 60s said, you know, what, what does a man need to be a comedian? And he keeps saying, you know, what com- equipment do you need? What do you need to do? And Woody Allen's like, no, 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 no. You, you, you know, you have to be if you think that you're funny and you realize that you're funny, you, you've you know, you've got to cultivate this. And he said, I used to go on stage when I was a writer. Um, cause he was, a, I think he was part of the writer's program at NBC for a while. Um, yes. He was one of the writers for Sid Caesar. Among exactly. The, yeah. Yeah. I, I think Sid Caesar and, and, uh, and Mel Brooks stuck up for him a few times when people yeah. were saying that he should be canned or whatever. But anyway, yeah. he said, I'd get up on stage and I'd read these jokes and people didn't care. Um, the point was that they, they wanted, he said, what they want is a, is a, is a familiarity with the person and an intimacy with them. Basically they want to like them. And if they like you. As a person, uh, you can tell almost any joke, and I think about, uh, I thought about that, and now f- from then on, when I go do lectures, my first ten minutes is just getting people at at their ease and to say, "Look, I'm not a threat. I'm not here to say anything <laughs> nasty. I'm actually here to have fun with you." And when I see the more laughter coming, then I launch into my stuff. You know? uh, <laughs> a very good strategy. Yeah, well, I think you do the same thing to a degree. Yeah. <laughs> 
What was the last place uh, I, I I saw you at Roswell? But I'm sure you've been you've spoken after that, haven't you? Yeah. Um, although uh, these past few months have been um, fairly quiet and a time of writing more than being out there. Uh, my last talk last year was um, in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire, mm. uh, for the um, I fourth or fifth annual. Exeter, New Hampshire UFO uh, Festival and Conference. One, I'm doubly proud um, because I I co-founded that. Um, and we're now getting a, a bit more of a foothold of, of UFO conferences in this part of the country, in the Northeast, where they have been woefully absent, absent for compared to out West and our friends in the Southwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, next talk actually will be in a couple of weeks in beautiful Rochester, New York. Not ah. that far from where I live. No, not far at all. You live in uh, Ithaca? I live just outside of Ithaca, New York, in the center of New York State. Yes, I do. Okay. Do you have you? Uh, how many times you've been on Soraya's show since you live right near him? Right. Yeah, I'm guessing fifteen. <laughs> maybe no, maybe fifteen though. Um, and it's doubly fun because Soraya's show, and I am not just a fan of Radio Mysterio, Mysterioso, I am a fan of the name Radio Mysterioso. But as far as names for radio shows, let's face it, Soraya <laughs> has carved out a unique niche for himself with Where Did the Road Go? <laughs> I mean, that is a great name for a show. It is. Uh, they actually work out of a wonderful um, uh, space very close to the Cornell campus up on uh, the hill that looks uh, dominates uh, Ithaca called College Town, which is just that. Yeah. Uh, in a beautiful, um, restored, historic building. Um, and so for some years now, uh, it's the only radio show I do um, where I go to the studio, just like years ago when right. we started. Right. Um, and not every Tom, Dick, and Harry had an international radio hookup coming out of their um, 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 living room. Yes, yeah. and their PC, just like you do, running your multinational cartel. Yeah, well, I had to start. Uh, I had to start somewhere. It was on a pirate radio <laughs> station. Do you remember when I did that pirate radio show, or did we know each other then? Late 90s. Uh-huh. 98, I had a pirate radio show on Wednesday mornings at 2 a.m. <laughs> From your ship off the coast. <laughs> we were in a, we were in a, um, in a walk-in closet in somebody's uh, apartment on a hill in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. <laughs> For two years till the FCC found the transmitter, which had been moved to the tallest building in Hollywood, you could hear at, at 40 watts, you could hear the station in Long Beach which is about 20 or 30 miles away. Wow. What a different time. So um, after you were released from Sing Sing, uh, you you went straight and continued in the radio business. Yeah, I actually took a radio course at UC Irvine in, you know, uh, actually to get an FCC license. And before I got one, I realized that driving all the way to Irvine every week, which was, uh, depending on the traffic, could be anywhere up to two hours, was not for me. So... Yeah, that's when the uh, Kill Radio started, which was the um, internet radio station, which is still going, by the way. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You sent me uh, just recently a book that your father wrote. 
And you, you think I was going to say today, I was like, okay, I'm going to skim it before I talk. I read the whole book. Today. You're kidding me. I read the entire thing from cover oh, to cover. I read from right at the beginning where he talks about where he's born to right at the end where he talks oh. about um, the um, uh, uh, where he's living now. You uh, oh. doing your work in the other room. I learned all about his jewelry business and what he went through in World yeah. War II and, and oh, what your mother was like in his early what? dates. And it was a fascinating... <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, I and it's it's very rare, and I'm not just saying this. It's very rare where I get hooked and say, I, "This I can't wait to read the next thing." Did he wow. write it? It was. It's very well, well written. It's very engaging. Let me tell and, you, you know, it is very well written, and I'm incredibly proud of my dad. Not only did he write it and every single word of it, um, I didn't. After he began it, he showed me rough drafts for the first 30 pages or so, and that was it until he finished it a few months ago. I did nothing. I saw nothing. I had no input whatsoever. And um, your audience should know that um, the brief backstory here was um, my dad and I share a house, and he walked in here some years ago into my office, waited till I was done. I looked at him. And he said to me, I have decided to write my memoirs and walked out of the room. <laughs> now, my dad has a very deadpan sense of humor, as you now know. You can tell, and, yeah. And I thought, is this, is there a punchline coming? Um, because he's not a writer, per se. Um, <laughs> and I followed him into his room. I said, what did you say? He said, I, I've decided to my, write my memoirs. You're a good writer. Your sister was a good writer. I have a story to tell. And with that, at age 95, when he began, he worked for two years, um, wrote it all longhand on, on yellow line paper. Um, when he was done, we, we brought in two very dear local friends, uh, both of whom have long affiliations with Cornell University. Our friend Lisa uh, typed the manuscript double-spaced and continued to help him with that aspect of the revisions. And our friend Lou, who is now uh, independently employed, but um, for many years was a senior book designer with Cornell University Press, ah. she laid it out. And where it stands right now, Greg, is we did an initial printing of 200. Uh, 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 many of those went out to friends, friends of friends, acquaintances, relatives, etc. And I am very proud to say that as of two days ago... It is now available um, as a book. It is called An Ordinary Man on Amazon, and it will soon be joined by a Kindle edition. But, um, you know, when you grow up, your parents tell you stories, and some of the stories my dad writes about I, I was aware of. Mm -hmm. Other ones I was not. And um, we had recorded many hours of his reminiscences uh, in the years before that, after my mom died. Uh, and we're now talking about the possibility of at some point in the future, possibly even after he's gone, uh, weaving all of that other information into it um, with a good editor. But I am so proud of him. And he did make my jaw drop a number of times. My, uh, <laughs> I think I know where those were. Well, his childhood growing up poor in New York City in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, that's a window on another world for mm -hmm. any of us 
And now in these times where parents are understandably so concerned about their children's activities, uh, monitor, you know, their movements and the like, my grandparents were the not helicopter parents, to put it mildly. And some of the little adventures my dad got himself into uh, as a boy uh, could make other parents gray. In fact, he was telling my sister and I uh, a couple of days ago, Greg, that he another story that he had wanted to put in the book but forgot to. <laughs> and this is classic dad growing up, um, his parents and his uncle and aunt are driving him and his cousin Reynolds through Queens, New York in the late 1920s. And there's a big field. Queens was quite rural at the time. And in the field is um, a sign that says, you know, take a flight in a plane for $5. A lot of money at the time, but it was a special thing. And they see a – there were these things all over the country, and almost all of them were – Used World War Two, uh, World War One by wing fighter planes. Yeah, barnstormers. Uh, most of them Curtis Jennies, uh-huh. and they watch as this double winged plane comes in for a landing, lands on this grass field, and the engine bursts into flame. <laughs> um, the pilot gets out, casual as anything, with the fire extinguisher, sprays it down. As my grandfather and my uncle go up to him to discuss this and. They say, what's the story with the fire and the engine? He says, it happens all the time. It's not a big deal. (laughs) So, well, that's all right then. And the next thing my father and my uncle Reynolds know is they are not only flying in this open World War I bi-winged plane. They are occupying one of the two you know, ports, so to say, together, they're not strapped in. and um, <laughs> Of course not. No, no. And the pilot decides, give them a, a thrill. I guess they didn't have real concerns about this at the time, but they fly over Manhattan so they can see the state <laughs> building and thing, and then takes them back. It's a very well-spent $5, apparently. Both boys had a wonderful time. Uh-huh. And... <laughs> Did the engine catch on fire when he landed again? <laughs> well, you you read the part about uh, the that summer place that they used to go, the the wonderful fire trap in New Jersey, the boarding house. And yes. he'd, he'd take off in the morning, uh, get in a rowboat, row down the river underneath the Army artillery test range with live rounds being fired overhead and come out into the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> At nine years old in a rowboat and then to wait hours until the tide changed to go back. Um, I, you know, I I didn't say anything about going out into the ocean. He did talk about the the storm that came and they capsized and then had to like sit under the boat for a few minutes while the storm went by. That was a separate one. That's where the canoe turned over and the hailstorm came. But not to worry, there was enough air under the canoe that they could breathe with the hailstorms coming. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm glad his parents didn't live to see uh, him lay out his childhood for them. Yeah, well, the the thing that struck me about it that was wonderful is the, the complete sense of this is just the way we did things. It's no big deal. You know, it wasn't I, it wasn't I, like, I, do you know what happened then? It was so amazing. And, you know, I almost died. Uh, it was just kind of like, nah, this stuff happened. And 
That was about yep. it. And that, that you know, that generation, that's that's how my dad talks about it. He talks about yeah. being almost blown up by rocket fuels at Aerojet when he worked there. Yeah. He's like, nah. I said, well, why did you quit? He goes, nah, there was too many people being killed. I'm like, what? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, they are, they are different than we are. And, um, I found it, even though, again, I, we know these basic stories about our parents, but, um, he and a number of other young friends really came up through their opportunities that they sort of gave themselves and worked for mm-hmm. as part of a club. You know, such an innocent thing, a club that worked out of um, the, the 92nd Street YMHA, actually, the oh, Young okay. Men's Hebrew Association. Right, okay. And yeah, he just keeps calling so, it the Y, and that's what I think of. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just like any other Y. It's just they, in the 1870s, ones began for Jewish guys because um, they weren't really officially covered by. Yes, they weren't welcome the at the other one. And now, of course, it's just fine. And in yeah. fact, uh, I visited that Y uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's a major cultural force still on the Upper East Side. But oh. then you see how these things that for us are history and books, a good storyteller and my dad writes without affect. If he his his long term memory is mind blowing. Yeah, uh, he can tell you events in great detail from eighty plus years ago. You know, sometimes what we had for lunch in the afternoon, I forget what that was too. But still, um, but there comes this moment where their dreams are growing. You know, they're coming out of the depression. Um, the thirties are moving on, and now. It's what is going on in Europe, what's going on in Spain, what's going on in Germany. And then we have Pearl Harbor. And my father was the first of any of his friends to enlist. And it's not that they didn't love their country, but they thought, you know, why enlist? You know, you're going to get drafted in a year. You've got a high number. You can enjoy your time. Yeah. But no, he like um, my dad's a fairly peaceful guy. But he had one purpose. And if you were Jewish in America in the 30s, you had a better idea of what was going on, the origins of the beginnings of the murders, the beginnings of organizing the Holocaust. The Jewish American community had an idea of what was going on. And he very bluntly said, you know, I wanted to kill Germans. And his big disappointment of the war, and by Germans, I I think it's understood that he means Nazis, but his big disappointment of the war, in a way, was that he scored too high on all of his aptitude tests. to be a radio uh, uh, instructor. Yeah, teaching radar and other things that were considered highly classified at the time. And then comes that moment where, as a mercenary here, trying to sell a couple of copies of my old dad's memoir... This is completely pays for your $15 for the book. That very sweet romantic moment where he meets my mother and her first reaction to him. (laughs) I don't know if we should ruin it for the folks, but I'll just say that it It wasn't positive. No, it wasn't good. And the chances (laughs) are you would have been talking to yourself or somebody else had things gone a little bit differently. Uh, If he was not so tenacious and, uh, you know, didn't care that she was dating a lieutenant colonel at the time. He has always enjoyed telling me that I was conceived uh, while he was A-W-O-L. Um, he doesn't make that he, clear in the book. No. Um, I, I, In a way, I'm thankful 
Um, but, <laughs> um, he had to get to see my mom. They were newlyweds and his, uh, it just wasn't happening. So he took it upon himself to do just that. And they met up in Manhattan. She lived in Queens. And of course, he was still in the service down south um, and had this rendezvous at the Hotel New Yorker, which still stands. I've stayed there. Yeah. um, uh, They do new life expos there. And I may be uh, (laughs) there again (laughs) next month. And I think when I stayed there last time, it was. Is this the room? Is it possible? <laughs> and then, what am I doing? I don't want to know this. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, in the book, he like, said, well, we just spent a lovely, lovely four days there together. Okay? Yeah, that's very discreetly done. Exactly. Yeah. And um, Oh, and then he said Peter arrived nine months later. Yeah. Uh, to, yes, we do a certain amount of math. I think for friends of mine or people that know me through my UFO-related work or other public functionaries um if you're looking for any insights into me um or my sisters helen and ann you will be woefully disappointed we make it to about two and a half pages of the entire book (laughs) yeah i kept going where's peter where's peter there's more pictures of you than there is descriptions of you yeah he made a point of saying you know i love you all but that was not the subject of this book so be aware that he did have a son and two daughters and um, two of us are still here. And um, I I think one of the most poignant things for me, though, is, you know, when he began it, looking especially at my life, uh, my sister's life, he felt, well, I'm having an ordinary life. We said, no, we don't see it that way. But now that it's done, here's this guy who's going to be 98 in a few months Mm -hmm. saying to other people don't tell me you're old don't tell me you don't have a story to tell don't sit there and say oh gee and i couldn't write a book it says yes you can and it might you know consider doing it i did it and there you go and now he's a public person right up there with donald trump Well, maybe that's—I—I I don't know. That's I a stretch, Peter. Back I, that sentence, but yeah, he's—I—I uh, I think it's wonderful. And the book is called *An Ordinary Man* by Alan Robbins. An ordinary, yeah, an ordinary man by yes. Alan Robbins, and uh, that is A L L A N. I'll leave it at that, folks. All right. Yeah, I—I I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. You know what it I reminded me of? Huh? You read the whole thing. Yeah, already. I am. I am knocked out. That's great. I just I just sat down on the bed, started reading it. And I think I stopped once to go to go to the bathroom. And that's it. I read the whole thing. I read it in one sitting. Wow. All right. Well, it is that kind of book. It is 111 pages. And I. Yeah, it's not a horse choker. You can read it in the afternoon. That is so cool. But that you wanted to keep reading it. That's the important part. Maybe it's just me. You, you know what it reminded me of in a very um, a direct way was you read books about history. You don't often read books by people who lived through it and weren't famous. Well said. And that's well said. very fascinating to me. I went on a jag for a while reading books like this. Uh, started with reading You Can't Win. Have you heard of that book? I don't think so. It was written by a guy whose pen name was Jack Black, not the Jack Black actor, but in the early 1920s. And what it was is this guy was born right after the Civil War, 
and or no, I'm sorry, maybe 20 years after the Civil War, and he lived through the turn of the century, and at a very early age, he decided he was going to be a criminal. Wow. So the whole book is his life as a as a um uh basically a a a bank robber uh stealing you know stealing uh payrolls from mining camps um whoa um uh learning from learning the trade from other people he met in jail about how to how to uh, blow up safes um whoa you know uh he never really he didn't stick anybody up at gunpoint his he was basically i guess what they call a sneak thief and he would mm. and he's the whole book is just about you know what happened after he, you know, well, from early life, and then his mother died early, and he was brought up by his father, and then he, you know, he ran away, decided, and he got in with this element, decided he wanted. First, he was, you know, riding the riding the trains with all the all the bums, and then he met, yeah. uh, he got in, he got in trouble, got thrown in jail, and when he met all these criminals, he decided this is what I want to do, and they took oh. him under their wing, and they taught him like any, he said it was just like learning any trade. They taught me how to be a crook. Wow, and. um Later, he developed a heroin habit, or sorry, an opium habit, um, and uh, went through that withdrawal. And then finally, at some point, right before he wrote the book, some uh, social crusader came to him and said, look, if you, if you stay out of prison, I'll give you a job, and uh, you just stay on the straight and narrow, and I'll help you out. So he, uh. he did that. He ended up as a librarian at, a, at, at, at the time at a, at a newspaper in San Francisco, oh and that's when he wrote... This this piece and it's one of my favorite books. It's it's uh, bec- I've heard about it because William Burroughs cites it as one of his favorite books. Ah, and he he's incorporates a lot of it into his writing. I, I noticed this. Um, and then that led me to another book called The Yellow Kid, which was a, not the one you think of as the uh, um, the uh, cartoon, um, right? The Yellow Kid, but a guy. I think he he uh, he lived in Chicago in the nineteen in the early twentieth century, and he was a confidence trickster. So it's his autobiography, and the 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 coolest thing about the book, besides all the little, you know, these little pieces of American life, you know, we went into this yes. bar, and, you know, it was prohibition at that time, and then we asked for this, and, you know, they bring us out peanuts, yes. and we say it's tea, but it's actually beer or whiskey, just all these little things. Yes. The, the, the main thing of the uh, theme of the book, which fascinated me, is, you know, people ask him at certain, you know, he'd gone through jail off and on and all that, but he he... He was probably swindled. He's he estimated, you know, two or three hundred thousand dollars out of people over the course of his career. Yeah, and I, I will let the guest speak here uh, soon. But uh, <laughs> he's no. This is great. What he said, uh, people uh, people ask him, well, how did he? How did you get these people to give you all this money? Based on some some of these stories that sound outlandishly yeah. stupid and 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 not very reliable, he said. The thing that people really wanted, I found over and over from the from the poorest person uh, with the least amount of money to the richest person that I could f- get money out of, if I could make him think they were getting one up on everybody else or were being let oh. in to, let in on a secret, even if it was illegal, where they could make a ton of money very quickly, they would that that was the bait that worked all the time. If they thought they could get one over one up on everybody else, that's what wow. his trick was. <laughs> so. To me, that's a, apart from all this UFO stuff, which also we both are fascinated with. Yes, that's another part of my interest where it's just I I can't get enough of it. I I you know I, I read it. a bunch of books about that period by people you know living through yeah. that period. Well, um, I, I'm right there with you. Um, those kind of historic details fascinate me as well, and I, I think some of the most engaging parts of uh, an ordinary life is just the ordinary stuff. 
that my dad talks about going to a restaurant and getting a meal, traveling by mass transit in New York in the 1920s, uh, going to school there, and then things that are so universal. Um, my dad was very smart. He was skipped twice, and he reflects back on that. Skipped um, grades, yeah. Yeah, and it felt that it was, in retrospect, one of the worst things that happened to him as a kid. Uh, he was particularly short and very sensitive about it. And so he's two years younger than everyone. He's a head shorter. And he'd be self- short even if it was their age, which made it worse. Yeah. And very self-conscious around asking out girls who, again, were uh, taller and more mature. So points of real frustration, but things that are completely unchanged. Mm-hmm. I mean, just universal yeah. stuff. Um, and, you know, that first time that somebody cares about you and you don't care about them and you find out what that's like. Yeah, what it's like uh, from that side. And, yeah, because he, he blew off that one girl and she said he realized that she was very disappointed in how bad that made yeah. it. Yeah. And then, you know, that other gal that he was crazy about who goes on to. Oh, in Broadway? Yes. And, oh God, that terrible night that he takes my mother to meet her <laughs> and is completely forgets to introduce her. That that could have been the marriage right there. Uh, and she didn't even barely remember him, apparently. Uh, correct. Yeah. Correct. At all, and, I think. Uh, she remembered him, but um, took a little bit of cajoling, but she didn't really care. Yeah, it's just how real life is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also like that he wove in what I would call big picture, small picture. There he is at 11, 12 years old with the family getting up just enough money to send him to Boy Scout camp. And who visits the camp that summer? The yeah. governor of New York, uh, a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt who meets with these Boy Scouts and says, boys, I've decided, I've made a decision that I am going to run for president of the United States. And if I am elected, I will come back here next year and I will spend the day with you as president. And son of a bitch, he did it. Yeah. Uh, so my dad actually got to meet FDR twice. And, um, you know, if you have half an imagination, uh, you can put yourself into these spots. I, I think it's, yeah. for me, the closest that we get to do time traveling, um, the wonderful world of reading or architecture or, you know, other things Art. that, uh, yes, exactly, that bring you right back to a moment or a time or a, a point in history. I, I think it's one of the things I love most about traveling, mm-hmm. um, that these vistas open up and um, you can look off into the distance and whether you're in a city or the wilderness and see a view that same one that people saw a hundred or a thousand years before. If you allow yourself to really get into it, congratulations. You are on the road of time. You know what that reminded me of this last year, I went out and visited some, uh, some people out in Alamogordo, New Mm. Mexico. And at one point our host took us out to look at this um, little church that had been there since 1911 or 06 or something like that, over a hundred year old church, this little tiny yeah. church out in the middle, just North of um, Alamogordo next to white sands. So we go up there and we see that, you know, we see this little church and he's saying, Oh God, I didn't even know this guy was dead. There's people in the, in the graveyard that he knows that he grew up with. Mm. Um, 
and they they've got like football jerseys on their graves and stuff because they they have on their graves what they were into. Oh. And right around the corner, this mountain, this uh, there's a little hill or a mountain there, and right around the mountain, uh, closer to the highway, is this giant petroglyph site with thousands and thousands of petroglyphs. And I'm a big awesome. petroglyph fan. Yeah. The weird thing about this site is that it is something like 12 miles from the Trinity site. You could practically see the site from where we were at the petroglyph place. And I thought, in July of 1945, you could have stood here at 5.30 in the morning, standing next to these petroglyphs, and the world's first atomic explosion went off, and a big wind came by and blew everything, and the, the, the flash lit up these petroglyphs. Yeah. That freaked me out standing there. Well done. Yes, you, you, that's that's exactly the way it is. That's exactly the way it is. When I walk friends around Manhattan or Brooklyn when they come to visit, um, whether it's in my professional uh, work as a, a city walking to a guide or, you know, whenever you and Sigrid can get out, I we will have a great time walking around the city. I um, yes, was doing so last month with a friend visiting from Madrid, and I said, let me make one moment in American history come alive for you. <laughs> At the bottom of Manhattan uh, uh, Island, um, where Broadway starts, it's like the bottom of an old thermometer, like the bulb part. It's a tiny little park. Mm-hmm. Less than a quarter of an acre, maybe it's, uh, I, I think it's about that. It's called um, Battery Park. Oh, yes, uh, no, I sorry. know it. No, uh, Battery Park is the larger park further down, Bowling Green. Okay, uh, where the Battery Dutch park, established, I know. Yeah, uh, Bowling. Uh, there is this original 1770s cast iron fence that surrounds this little park. The Declaration of Independence was read in uh, Philadelphia on July 4th, but it wasn't until the 9th of July that a rider uh, arrived in Lower Manhattan and called together a group of people, and he read the Declaration of Independence for the first time in New York in that little park. Okay, well and good. Uh, People are irate, they're incensed, they're excited. They go home, they come back. In the park is a full-size equestrian statue of George III. And on like every 12th stanchion of the fence is a crown Mm -hmm. uh, on the support columns and then thinner columns. Oh, I can see what you're getting to here, yeah. People come back, Greg, with hacksaws, Uh a standard tool in a colonial toolbox as well as a fairly modern one. They saw off. All of the crowns, they knock down the statue of George, they melt all the metal and make shot to start killing British soldiers. (laughs) Okay, when that's the story, but when you stand by the fence and you know that and you run your fingers across the top of one of those 12 stanchions, uh, you know, uh, the, the major stanchions where the, the crowns were cut off of, even with all those layers of paint, you feel the marks of those hacksaws as yeah. they cut off those crowns on July 9th, 1776. Mm-hmm. That is where history comes to life, rubbing your thumb across that. Yeah, you're not often allowed to touch those things. I feel the same thing, same way when I go visit the petroglyphs or 
or yeah. um, the uh, or uh, cliff dwelling sites in in uh, in the Four Corners area. You just stand there, and some of them, I've been taken to by uh, archaeologist friends. I've stood in these things that are not tourist areas. They have, and basically uh-huh. they're archaeological sites. But I've sat in. I've sat in, you know, a, a cliff dwelling site inside one of the rooms that has not been changed. There's corn cobs on the floor from 400 years ago or 600 or whatever. That kind that, of thing. That wow. you, you really feel it. That and you, there's a trash bin and you look down there and there's pieces of pottery. There's broken arrowheads. And you're just like, yeah. uh, you know. And wow. then And then <laughs> and once and then possibly you'll go to one and one side of it there'll be a bunch of. Um, uh, s- smoke stains on the on the rock, and you're thinking, uh, "Wow, it's lasted this long." And the guy says, "No, this is where cowboys camped in the in the 19th century, and they set this uh, fire." That carbon has a story all its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God, yeah. I, in a way, I feel a bit sorry for people who uh, have trouble, you know, suspending that fourth wall and allowing themselves to have. The kind of experiences that we're talking about, uh, I think they're amazingly enriching. And history is a living thing. There's no question about it. Unfortunately, the way it's taught, you know, it's kind of dry, dead stuff for a lot of young people. And that's the attitude they have when they're older. But if you're fortunate, uh, history is a living thing and you can enjoy it uh, in a number of different ways like we've been talking about. One of the uh, one of my listeners, Jeff, says I've probably heard Peter a hundred times, but I've never heard this stuff. Uh, <laughs> well, I, one of the reasons I love to do your show is, like you said, we can talk about anything. It doesn't have to stick to uh, shop or you know the latest cases or. Yeah, we you know, can get to that a little bit. He also says yeah, an absolutely. hour in, and he hasn't said. Well, they haven't said a word about paranormal activity. That's why I like the show. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I had one last thought about my dad's book. Please. It, it it really may well turn out to be the most unparanormal book you will read this year. I think that's what you put in the in the uh, note you put in there for us. I and you, I, I didn't even notice till just now when I was looking at it. You had your dad sign it for us, for Sigrid and I. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You know, that's going to... Uh, Elevate it um, if the NSA takes us out and you put it on eBay. Um, (laughs) That that definitely will add to its value. But I I don't think they're worried about him that much anymore as he's approaching 98. Uh, The secrets are safe. Radar made it through World War II. (laughs) Although he does have that wonderful story that somebody in his radar team and they're all it's top secret don't ever talk to anybody about (laughs) it got a furlough goes to a bookstore picks up a copy of popular mechanics brings it back and it's all the schematics for what they're working with and they're in their wonderful military response the way they dealt with it is don't tell anybody about this magazine (laughs) give me that magazine and shut up yeah that's Ah, but we won the war anyway. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, you start reading this. It's like, well, we really didn't quite know what we were doing, but they assigned me to so It's like, what? You, were <laughs> you know, it sounds like he was barely competent, yet that he was teaching other people on some of these things he was barely competent at at the time. I suppose he got better at it over time. The other oh thing I noticed, did you ever listen to Gene Shepard again? One, yeah. a few of his... Um, uh, shows he talked about being in the army. I don't think he was ever sent overseas. He was kind of like your dad. He was too good at, excuse me, at certain things. 
And what he did was one of his one of his duty assignments was to run a a, a radar um, a radar facility in Florida. Ah, uh. and I was wondering. <laughs> I don't think that they work together. Um, that's a good question, though. Um, hmm, I'll have to talk to the author and find out if there's any connection there. Yeah, I, I, I guess you'd have to find. It's pretty easy to find uh, the shows online and uh, find out uh, some of the, the details. I think he told about where it was. He said there one of the facilities was this. They'd cleared out of the swamp, and it was a a. a about a mile square, completely devoid of vegetation, and there were guard towers and everything. And they had to actually walk um, through this uh, through this giant expanse to get to the actual radar facility from the edge of the swamp, or yeah. at least where the swamp stopped. They'd take a jeep yeah. through the swamp, get to this like guardhouse, and then they'd go across this completely bare piece of land in the middle of nowhere with a giant radar uh, uh, facility in the middle of it. So, yeah, I. I you know, I so many things are triggered as we're, we're talking about this. Um, Good by this the other extreme um, when he was living on the beach in Florida and oh, in the tents. You know, felt like my God, we're getting away with murder here. We have our brothers, you know, being shot at overseas, and in that one facility for that brief time they were there. They could order how they wanted their eggs done in the morning, that kind of thing. Yeah, and they were sleeping in tents on the beach. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> People pay it, good money for that now. <laughs> yes. Uh, a moment of great pride for me was um, after he marries my mother and she can come down and join him and he's stationed in the South. Um, this is a white New York Jewish liberal um, exposed to racism in a way that he had never seen it. And mm -hmm. then there's my mother who comes down to join him and gets fired from her job because one of the requirements was if you are serving a person of color and a white person walks up to your counter, you immediately ignore that first customer and you uh, take care of the white person. And my mom refused to do it and got in fights and got in fights with people on the street for the way that they were treating black people and my father at a certain point said you have to go home or you will get hurt uh knowing my mother i think the other person might have gotten hurt <laughs> but i thought wow way to go mom and way to go dad at that for that matter as well yeah you said you were uh, in kind of a quiet time now working on a book so what do you can you say what you're working on will that ruin it oh or sure you... no no not at all um um, it has been a very reflective time for me um, coming out of certainly what's been the most frustrating, um, I would say across the board, worst professional year of my life mm -hmm. uh, based on the fact that my co-author on the first book that I wrote, uh, co-wrote, Left at East Gate about the uh, Rendlesham Forest British UFO case, it now turns out that his account is not fully authentic, and that may be, be being very kind. Mm -hmm. And um, after going through all of the various stages that I went through in reaction to this and how the wool was so brilliantly pulled over my eyes for such a long time, you know, you do your best to make your peace with yourself, make your apologies, understand where you screwed up. 
and um, then let it go and start to move on again. Um, what I'm working on right now is actually going to be um, a compilation, in, an anthology, if you will, of writing that I've done over the past couple of decades. I, I should say having nothing to do with uh, the Rendlesham Forest case, but over these decades that I've been obsessed with this subject, <clears throat> my habit is to self-assign myself research projects, um, work them up if they're good enough and they come out well. Uh, it's something that I can do as a conference talk, sell as an article, um, and, you know, just take the satisfaction of having completed uh, uh, an investigation that you're at peace with and, you know, move on to another one. And so it will be a combination of conference papers, commentaries and editorials, um, uh, the autobituary, um, really a, a fairly wide ranging selection of subjects and myself at different points uh, in my own maturity as a writer. Um, it occurred to me last year, Greg, reading your book, It Defies Language, um, that sometimes when we begin a project, we have, well, like a painting uh, or any other creative endeavor. We really don't know where it's going. And in your book, you had the courage to do something that caught me off guard. I, I knew it was going to be, what? you know, essays. Um uh, on, on obviously, you know, subjects relating to the paranormal, what I was not prepared for and what I found particularly moving and enlightening was where you open up about yourself in different periods of time, what you were going through, the impact of doing this kind of work, which at times can be extremely isolating and not necessarily rewarding. Uh, not to mention that whatever we're doing, we all go through stuff where we're up and down and uh, that you wove that material into the various essays that you were writing back then. Also, that, you know, I, I knew that you and Redfern were good friends, of course, and longtime colleagues, but I didn't realize how close you were. And that was another thing that I uh, found very endearing about the book to get an idea like we do in life. Um, yeah, that's my friend. But, oh, I didn't realize that their friendship with that other friend of mine was, you know, extended to these areas. Um, and Nick, of course, is like a force, force of nature in our work. I like to yeah. uh, say with pride that I actually met him before he had published his first book. Hmm. And now he has published 837, no, 838 yeah, books. Yeah, don't turn around. Um, no, exactly. And they're <laughs> good. My God, he's such an amazingly good and prolific writer. Mm -hmm. Off on a tangent here. But yes, I, no, I love the fact that The show is about you, tangents. Yes, right. <laughs> that, that you made parts of it defies language extremely personal. And I think a lot of people don't have what it takes to do that. It's just, that's my life. It's nobody's business and that's fine. But other times we can give value by sharing some of the things that have happened to us and how we dealt with them or didn't deal with them rather than just keeping it to ourselves. And congratulations and 
thank you for doing that there. No, oh, sure. I, you know what? I, I, we will uh, talk about what you're working on, but the, 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 the funny thing is you say that, I didn't even realize I was doing it. I was just like, well, this stuff happened to me. I guess I can talk yeah. about it. And yeah. it doesn't. it's not written too badly. If it's written badly, I'll either correct it or not include it. But there's one whole section that's just about people I've known just because I yes. wrote about them, you know, like yes. like Nick or, or Gabe Valdez or Pam Stonebrook or um, any of these people I've known for a while or for a long while. And... And, you know, what it was like to be with him. I should have written something about yes. Jim Mosley. There's nothing in there about Mosley, but I, yeah. I considered him a great friend, too. Yeah. So just <clears throat> things like that. But um, your, your stuff is, uh, have you written things kind of, have you written personal things like that? Because most of the time you see people like you, any researcher yeah. in there basically saying, here is the paper and the thing that I, um, th this is my research. Uh, I'm presenting it to you. And um, please, uh, <laughs> please, please either praise or don't accept or you know, whatever you're going to do right. with it. You know, you put yourself out in public like that, yeah. but that's what you're doing. You're not burying your soul really, but um, I guess you've decided to do a little bit of that in this book. Well, most certainly. And um, even from my earliest uh, conference papers, I would not feel awkward about bringing in my own experience. Um, this, um, a good example is a piece that will be in it on the United Nations 1978 uh, Special Security Council, Special Political Committee meetings of the mm -hmm. Security Council. I've heard you talk to, about that. It's a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah. Basically to try to establish. I mean, the, the goals were not huge. It was to try to establish a committee to study the UFO phenomena and decide whether or not it warranted a permanent area of study. Well, um, the meetings happen. And by a wonderful circumstance, uh, myself and Antonio Huneas, who I haven't seen in way too long, but mm -hmm. my oldest living colleague in the work, um, we worked on uh, helping to edit a paper for the Secretary General, and we were invited to attend these meetings. And for me, writing it up, it was – I didn't even try to separate my own excitement and my own interest as a young researcher and a New Yorker heading for the Secretariat, the main building of the UN, on that very snowy day in November of 78, meeting my parents there who were so interested that they were going to do this thing that they both played hooky from work on their own that day. <laughs> Uh, we met up at the U.N. I have a wonderful photo taken by a U.N. photographer standing with my mom and dad in the lobby with my mom smoking away. Of course, you could smoke in any public building at the time. Yeah. Uh, and when the whole um, – you may be familiar with the Russian case, the Voronezh 1989 mm -hmm. UFO incursion in uh, a small park in the Soviet Union. Yeah, with Very the robot, with the... Um, uh, uh, yes. With, with yes. The, I can't remember the name of that group, with that, with that symbol on it for some reason. Yeah. And um, when the story broke, it was already several weeks old. Uh, it had happened in September. Mm -hmm. It broke in um, 
late October, I think. In any case, I was home and um, home <clears throat> at that time being on West 57th Street in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I had CNN on in the background. This is in the days when uh, network uh, when these round-the-clock news stations were pretty much brand new, and I, I think CNN was only a year or so old at the time. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I think it was 88 or 89. Umo that, was, is an UMO symbol. That's what I was trying to think of. It, I'm not sure if that was the one. I don't think so, but it, I think that was Spain. Uh, this one, though, I'm watching the televisions on in the background, and all of a sudden it's breaking news that TASS, the Soviet news agency, has released this information, and they are taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. And I slapped in a, a, a video cassette, and I started recording. And by the end of a few days, I think I had 20 different news takes on this story. But while in that first hour thinking, hey, I'm in Manhattan. The offices of TASS, the Soviet <laughs> agency, are less than half a mile from here in Rockefeller Center. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I wonder. And I cold called the offices, got their number from the phone book, yep. uh, got on my best grown-up voice, introduced <laughs> myself as a uh, investigative writer specializing in the study of subject of UFOs, and I'm watching this uh, news story break from TASS, and I wonder if I might stop by your office and discuss this with somebody there. Well, I mean, you can't make, you can make this stuff up. I take that back. I make anything <laughs> up. Um, but I had a guy on the phone with a slight Russian accent uh-huh. who, yes, come over. Uh, I mean, I could hear people quite excited in the background. This was a breaking story, mm-hmm. and it was breaking through tasks they again this this made it official and it made it real and 40 minutes later i am standing with these russian news people um in rockefeller center in their offices reading these releases as they're coming off the telexes um they were very curious to know what i thought um i was feeling amazed to be here with them and all of us feeling we could talk about it. Remember, also, it's 1989. The Soviet Union Union is literally disintegrating Mm -hmm. as we're talking about this. um, Within a matter of weeks, I had connected up with a key on the ground researcher, an associate professor uh, at a trade college there uh, whose specialty was stress in metals uh and he had a team on the ground there that day Hmm. and they published a book in russian on the subject sent it to a friend of mine um actually uh at the time the editor of the journal uh of the energy sciences um established by wilhelm reich uh, the journal of organomy Mm -hmm. and um she said i don't really know where to direct his interest on this so why don't I send him to you. And over that next year, as the Soviet Union disintegrated, we had a ferocious correspondence. I think we must have exchanged about a dozen letters and parcels, uh, many of them stuffed with news items. I sent him some money. He sent me uh, books from the local uh, art museum. And we talked about our lives. Um, (laughs) <laughs> me in America doing better than him in Russia 
Um, but this common thing, this fascination with this truly anomalous subject. And so, yeah, um, to cut back to, to the point we were talking about, yeah. for me as an investigative writer, sometimes the best thing you can do is keep the hell out of your story and relate it in the great dragnet school of literature, just the facts, ma'am. Exactly. Other times, I think it's important and meaningful to – place this within a human context and if you had any involvement or any contact with individuals um, of note share that share that with people uh, as you've done as i try to do yeah i've I've, for the longest time actually when i was writing project beta patrick weege the editor um, ah yes yeah, a a a good editor, and I, I I still consider him a friend. I haven't talked to him in a while. You probably see him a lot more often than I do. No, I probably I haven't talked to him in a while too. But you're right, a good man, a good editor, and um, New York based for many years. Mm-hmm. He when I was writing it, I he said, "Well, what happened in Vegas in 1989? Can you talk about that? You know, are you going to talk about that?" I said, "Yeah, I'll talk about it." He goes, "Well, talk about what happened to you." And I said, "I don't want to do that. I'm not part of the story." <laughs> I hate it when people put themselves in the story. <laughs> and, you, and I realized later why I hate it, because most people are shitty writers. Yeah, that's right. Um, not that I'm a great writer or anything like that, but it, it, it's context and the way you present it. But, you know, yeah. because of that, because of Patrick saying, put yourself in the story, it was interesting. That sort of broke the dam for me. And it's like, okay, well, if it's justified, which is very yeah. rare. I will yes. talk about what happened to me, but then the, then the thing is, and I'm sure you're noticing this. You go back and look, and you 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 do have to include yourself in the story in in many cases. Otherwise, why tell the story? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, but try to I try to keep myself out of the middle of it as much as possible. But you know, yeah, whatever. I'm I'm not. Uh, there's no there's no huge brick wall. It's just kind of like, well, this happened and it was interesting. And it's I look at it in the way that somebody just actually uh, one of the listeners, uh, James Archer, came on and said that story about going through India with the hashish was one of the best stories I've ever heard. Uh, um, and I think so, too, which you. is why I had you repeat it on the show a few years ago. Yes. But yes, the fact, you know, if you told that pro- story in the third person, it would not be nearly as interesting <laughs> <laughs> as no. you know if you just said look this happened to a guy i know that'd be interesting yeah. but not not in the way that you brought it to life so um i i, I it sounds like you may uh you can apply this uh this uh technique to what you're working on right now yeah i um i another thing that that has been in my thoughts lately that i've been working with and wonder if it's ever you know crossed your mind as well um, we are passionate about the subjects that we're pursuing. And at the same time, you know, we're, we're here on the air now. You have listeners that tune in because they like you. They like the stories that you bring to the air. They like the guests that you bring in. Um, when I speak at a conference or at a library, more often than not, I'm speaking to people that already have an interest in the subject. Mm-hmm. And I, I've just been thinking more and more about ways to bring it to a wider audience, not ne- even necessarily a huger audience, but an audience that normally would not um, be following some of these subjects. And um, some months back, I thought, I wonder if there's any way that I can – combine my um, 
my obsession with this subject and the fact that I'm fairly good at what I do usually um, and writing about it in a manner that could draw from and apply some of my knowledge about and love of the theater. Uh, I studied theater for many years. I still study acting, although not with any intent of being an actor. It's just that one of my dearest friends, um, John Strasberg, who I think is the finest acting coach working today in America, um, um, and came by his talent rightly. His father was yeah, the Lee Strasberg. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, in working with actors off Broadway and in, in seeing ways that people communicate on the stage in coming back from Greece again this year and thinking about the Greek stage and dramas that are still germane and exciting to see, except they just happen to be several thousand years old. <laughs> um, I took material that um, I'm sometimes associated with that I've researched on and off for several decades that I've spoken about, that I've written about, that being the extraordinary life and strange death uh, of our first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. Mm -hmm. And over the past months, um, put it in a form that not without some irony on timing, <laughs> um, I engaged in trying to communicate on our friend Ryan Sprague's um, podcast last Monday, and tomorrow I'll be doing the second half, mm -hmm. which is not a lecture, not a talk on, but what we would call in the theater a, um, a dramatic reading. It's not a staged reading, and it would be accompanied by images flashing behind me, uh, ideally on a, a rear screen projection, with me taking all of the salient facts and writing it up almost like an old-fashioned radio play. Um, again, it's not a play. It is a two-part dramatic reading. Um, I'm curious to know how it hits people who are involved in this subject and whether or not it was, gee, that was boring. I, you know, turned it off halfway through or I knew something about that subject, but hearing it told in that manner makes me more interested in the life and the circumstances surrounding the death of this great American who we've all forgotten about that I think I'm going to pick up a copy of Driven Patriot, the only imprint, uh, 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 biography on, on James Forrestal. Um, those of us in, in ufology, uh, certainly many of my colleagues and a lot of the folks that read us and hear us at conferences and, you know, listen to shows like this or watch us on TV when we're there, um, I think are laboring under the slight illusion that we have enough of a critical mass in the public who take this subject seriously, who want to see change, who want to see disclosure, who want this information out there, that we're really poised to go. And it could happen at any time. I don't think so. Um, I'm curious as anybody about uh, what they're all about and what we know about them 
and the myriad of thems. But I think we're forgetting that the great majority of our fellow Americans and citizens of other countries of the world are woefully unprepared for this eventuality or this brave new world should it come when it comes. And in the meantime, we can be doing things in our communities to help folks just wrap their head around the idea that, yeah, this may hit the fan in your lifetime. And if it does, you shouldn't be totally shocked. I know that we joke about this and, you know, I'm your friend who's into UFOs or, you know, some other area of the paranormal that you think it's charming and I'm so quirky, but you like me anyway. But indeed, there is a reality to this and you might want to educate yourself to a bit of it. But how do we reach these people? So, again, just another series of tangents running through my mind on how best to make contact, engage in dialogue, um, and continue along the trail. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you know, I am not a, a fan of any kind of disclosure because I think what's being disclosed is not understood properly by people yeah. who are trying to disclose us to disclose it to us. I may yeah. be wrong. That's why I play yeah. that anti-ETH thing. Not because I'm against it as yeah. a principle. I'm against it more that more as it's the most popular thing and it ignores a huge to me um uh spectrum of experience, description, theorizing any way you could possibly look at it by putting it in this narrow um but the thing is this is so hard to explain to somebody that's not into it because they've been spoon-fed aliens. And I don't really know, you know, people ask me, it's like, do you really want to know what I think? Because it's not, it's not really a black and white thing to me. It's very <laughs> complicated to me. Um, and yeah. that is only one possibility to me. Um, and the other ones fascinate me much more than, than that one. So I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm kind of loath to tell people it's going to be disclosed at some point that there are aliens here that are coming here from other planets. I don't think that's what's <laughs> going to be disclosed. I think what has to be disclosed, if there's any kind of disclosure, comes from the bottom up, and it's people's realization that there are that we are complicit in the creating of the perceptions that we have about it. And I'm not mm. exactly sure if that adds up to visitors from other planets. I know you are yeah. more convinced of that, but then again, as we've talked about on my show before, I have not had the experience that you've had. If I had had a close encounter or something, and I, said, I think I said this in the book at some... Oh, no. Yeah. I said it in um, um, Reframing the Debate. If something like this happened to me, yes. it was so unequivocal that I couldn't make, you know, I couldn't say anything else about it, what would I do? Would my, yeah. would my worldview change? Would my beliefs about this subject change? Would my feelings about what I'm interested in in it change? I hope it wouldn't, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, we have gone um, um, on to discuss this subject a number of times over the years, and it will always be open dialogue. Um, Forty-odd years ago, when I my obsession sprang fully formed uh, based on my return memory of my childhood siding with my sister mm -hmm. and then her description of her abduction-related memories at a time when these things were really not being discussed. 
um, the most convenient, the most ironically, I think, conservative <laughs> explanation for truly anomalous advanced technology UFOs is the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Um, I just think it's so um, funny in a way, number one, that it really has become the most conservative and least cool of the many possibilities of what we're dealing with. And over the decades I've been involved with the subject, it means it's come to mean less and less to me, you know, the minutia of where are they from? Why are they here? Mm -hmm. What are they about? What do they want? Et cetera, et cetera. I think that it's fair to say based on an awful lot of research of um, footage of objects seemingly under intelligent control coming out of deep space, this kind of thing, mm -hmm. that we are likely dealing with the extraterrestrial hypothesis as one of a number of things that are going on simultaneously mm. since time immemorial or <laughs> close on um, other dimensions. Um, is there a civilization in the interior of this planet as is part of uh, the great mythology of the unknown um, wormholes um, astral I mean who the F knows exactly uh, I, I just I, simply see extraterrestriality as one of the things that is overwhelmingly likely going on mm -hmm. but in no way um, should its actuality if I'm correct <laughs> um, be seen as a reason or a cause to dismiss um, you know the that field of myriad possibilities pioneered by some of the great thinkers like Valet and John Keel and a new generation of folks who are friends of ours mm -hmm. who are questioning um, these establishment norms. And yes, disclosure, when it comes, may disappoint, you know, the more hardcore uh, purists as, as far as that goes because, well, wait a minute. I just want them to be from outer space. That's where the movies have them. And mm -hmm. I want to go to those planets. And don't tell me about interdimensional mm. stuff. That's weird and strange. And, yeah. you know, give uh, me flying saucers from other planets. I, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with that other stuff. I, I feel it. Yeah, like you say, exactly. I feel it's far more complicated than people coming, you know. beings coming here from other other planets it's it's far more complicated than that and the other thing i've been harping on this for a while on my show i don't know if you know uh jeff ritzman or what what you um think about what he says but um he's a big fan of george hansen's mm -hmm. and what um what i've been talking about on my show recently and i've heard people kind of vehemently arguing against it is he says i think i've developed a method where you can have an experience of something um, by try, by going out and trying this yourself. And the reason I'm championing this is because if you have an unequivocal experience of something that's not within your experience normally, um, mm -hmm. that blows you out of the water, 
that is worth far more than a thousand books, lectures, or people telling you what's going uh, on. Ah, yes. Yes. And if we can, and the, unfortunately, if people can have their own experiences, none of them are going to be the same. The, and the problem here is to get people to realize that you're all looking at the same elephant from different places, probably. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, the, you know, if people can have an unequivocal experience of whatever this is, brought on by themselves, actually, if they can do this in some cases, yeah. I think that will cause so much more change than anybody telling you what it is or, like I said, uh, being told about it or being told to believe in it. There, there's no substitute yes. for that. But um, and, and it's like Strieber said, it's it's uh, it's it's the most demo whatever it is, is going about this in the most democratic way possible. <laughs> you know, I mean, you may think yeah. that, that people like me don't like <laughs> Whitley Strieber, but I think a lot of the things he said and still says, oh, yeah, are highly creative and interesting in a way that somebody who wasn't an artist could never come up with. Well said. Um, Whitley is extremely thoughtful. He's articulate and he's bright, as we all know. He's he's a wonderful writer, and um, he is a truly open spirit. I mean, mm -hmm. he he'll look at it, and um, I, I I think because he's intelligent, reminds me a little bit when I was a kid watching William F. Buckley on television, knowing <laughs> that my parents disagreed with this highly highly watchable character. And that I guess I wasn't supposed to like, you know, his his brand of politics either as a kid, but I couldn't help smiling and thinking I he is absolutely engaging to watch. He's obviously really smart. Mm -hmm. He's saying things that are making me think about this and that and either. Yeah, I can build an argument there or. Yes. But he's got style and. I get it. OK, I'm I'm. You know, we're open to all of these um, yes. uh, different different sources if we allow ourselves to and, you know, stay fairly light and not get too defensive about our positions. There's an awful lot we can learn if we can keep our minds open and maybe some things we should be unlearning. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I think we are heading for this false sort of – well, not false – but I think there are a lot of people that I really care about who are so dedicated and very caring about other people and um, concerned about the implications of disclosure, whatever shape it takes, who will be disappointed when, you know, if it doesn't validate the lovely fairy stories that they want to be true. Um, yeah. We are in many ways, if we get too dogmatic – the functional equivalent of theological thinking. Yeah. Um, if I believe that, you know, some UFOs come here from Alpha Centauri and that they, um, I, I, I have a very strong feeling they've been coming here for 487,000 years. And this is the reason I saw this documentary and this is what they eat. And this is why they're different from the ones who are coming here from this place. For me, I don't know who am I to say that these things are not true. Um, it's just that it's so easy to just cave in and believe something that's comfortable for you or mm -hmm. romantic yeah. or exciting um, or cutting edge. 
Um, right now, I'm I'm not even sure what to think anymore about <laughs> all of the breaking aspects of you know the the yes. fleets. Yes, I try to stay away from this, but it's, the soldiers. And yeah, it's uh, it's the elephant in the room. So I've been holy macaroni. Trying yeah. to stay away from it. The one thing, I, <laughs> one thing I said when somebody has asked me. First thing I said when somebody asked me about it is, if somebody's telling you exactly what you want to hear, mm-hmm. I'd be really careful. Yeah. <laughs> and yep, a lot of being people are being told exactly what they want to hear. It's it's adhering to the myth, and that and worries me. If somebody says to me. But they're really putting forward a tremendous amount of sincerity, and they seem to know all their details. I, I'm sorry, that's that's not a that's not enough. That is, in fact, nothing to base anything on without anything to back it up. Now, in saying that, yes, I I don't have a carburetor um, or a spark plug or their equivalent from a uh, crashed UFO nor do I have a thumb or an appendix from a gray, mm-hmm. whatever it is. I'm not very good with the word alien. I always seem to end up calling them other intelligences or words like that. Uh, it doesn't mean that that proof doesn't exist. Um, and it doesn't mean that maybe someday somebody can't present it in a scientific inquiry. But for now, um it's a problem, and um, I, I don't dismiss certain theories or uh, um, constructs simply because there is no of that kind of evidence to back it up. You know, of course, we we don't have access to it if it exists. But at the same time, and to quote the great Judge Judy. Uh, <laughs> Don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the uh, the fact that um, well, you know what? I look at this is my excluded middle thing. I've, I'm sitting here saying, "Oh, don't believe everything." And, <laughs> and on, then on the other hand, I'm talking to people that are saying, "You know, there's people at universities and scientists that heard this and they're opening up to it." Yeah. Okay. You know what? I think that's a good idea. I think at some point, people that yes. are not into the subject at all will come into it with a fresh point of view, and they may supplant ufology, which I have no problem with. Sure. As long as people that are intelligent are doing it intelligently and not being either, you know, belief-driven or dismissive-driven or whatever, you know, they're both beliefs Thank on you. opposite sides. Yeah. But looking at this in a, in a dispassionate way, and I, I think that... Um, one of the upshots of all this is that's a really good fallout from this is that it seems like a few more people quietly are taking this a little bit more seriously. And I've heard reports that people at higher institutions are, which is very surprising. Yes. I I think um, the great um, Nobel Prize winning physicist Max Planck, if I remember the quote correctly, it's science progresses one funeral at a time. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like sounds like a uh, punk reading of Thomas Kuhn, you know. Yeah, the old <laughs> guard either has to die out or have 
give themselves permission to have their own epiphanies. Um, ultimately, doing good work, doing good research, getting it out in the world can have as much or more to do with changing hearts and minds as an impending contact, you know, uh, of higher ups in the human race and allegedly meetings of other intelligences, blah, blah, blah. What I'm flashing back on right now is last month I spent several days in Manhattan. Part of the reason was to attend a um, a backer's premiere of a new documentary um, on the life and work of Dr. Wilhelm Reich, one of the most misunderstood, maligned um, scientific minds of the last several millennia. Good segue, a true Peter. Genius. Hmm? Good segue, Peter. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> a, a true genius who I was fortunate enough to uh, begin reading uh, when I was still a teenager. And um, his life and work, the therapy that he pioneered, have all made tremendous differences in, in my life. And not to mention the cadre of friends I have around the world that also uh, study his work, replicate his experiments, etc. My point being this, <clears throat> several years ago, a filmmaker announced that he was going to attempt to tackle making a quality documentary aimed at the scientific community, mm -hmm. aimed at um, students, aimed at um, historians, that uh, I heard about this when it was going on, yeah. Yes. It's um, it's called – there's a wonderful quote of Wilhelm Reich's that is printed at the beginning of every single book of his that's ever been published. And I think about 18 or so. He's a very prolific writer, brilliant man, uh, have been published. And it's love, work, and knowledge are the wellsprings of our life. They should also inform it. Or govern it. I I've, I've got a T-shirt. That... Govern it. Yes, thank you. And govern yeah. it. Yeah, it's and... on a T-shirt I have. So, I... <laughs> yeah, I bought it at the Wilhelm Reich Museum. I finally visited Bravo. there a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, go ahead. I'm a... sorry. No, it's it's a great. Um, it's a wonderful quote and wise words. Mm -hmm. uh, documentary is called Love, Work, and Knowledge, ah. and secondary title, uh, the Life and Work of Wilhelm Reich, or something like that. Mm -hmm. There have been quite a number of documentaries and film treatments on Reich, on his life over the years, over the decades. None that I've seen that really was what I hoped sooner or later somebody could make. Um, I, I uh, went to this screening because a good friend of mine was one of the backers, and it was not perfect, but you know what? It was terrific. It is a fine documentary. It is a fine documentary with outstanding production values that helps articulate and clarify uh, this great scientific uh, and social thinking mind. Um, and I couldn't help but think as I watched it and saw it as a completed work, although it may be worked on a bit more. Um, that here's another tool for people like me to say it's not available as a DVD yet, but your organization or your school um, can contact the producers and arrange for screening, that kind of thing. 
it's one more valuable tool to assist people like me in helping other people get a uh, a better sense of a um, a beachhead in seriously understanding who this great man of science was and all it took was an awful lot of hard work <laughs> awful lot of research um As fundraising always. um lining up on air talent archival material much of which was incredibly moving to me including not just footage of Dr. Reich at work, but film that he had shot himself in the laboratory hmm. and then returning to voiceovers of his voice, of him speaking, wow. which also very moving. Yeah. Um, and thoughtful, well-organized, but crucially important, superb production values. And boy, you know, we should all be aspiring, not to be filmmakers necessarily, but whether or not we write a small commentary piece or we go on the air or we're involved in a discussion to keep that bar set high, communicate the best we can, work with the best material we can find, um, sharpen our communication skills and do our best to be an asset out there in the world with all of this material that otherwise is wink-wink, nudge-nudge, goofball, escapist nonsense, which is really not at the heart. It's a Well, the, the point is to kind of steer away from that kind of stuff. The, the, the yeah. thing is, is trying to, like you said, trying to get a clear message out in a, in a simple way. Whenever I, you know, trying to explain what I... I think about things, I think, you know, the, the first thing you do is stop and think, how can I say or write this in a way that where somebody will understand it immediately? I just had uh, Miguel on my show, Miguel yes. uh, Romero, Red Pill, and was asking yes. him about, about his design philosophy. And he said, if somebody walks by and looks at the cover of the book <laughs> or whatever I do, if they can uh, intuit in a second, in less than a second, what is going on, then that I feel that I've done, you know, at least some of my job. And that's how I kind of feel about uh, anything I do in the show or writing or whatever. Yes. It's it's all communication with people. If you're not communicating, then you should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> the most yes. important thing yes. is to communicate with people and, and get Indeed. them engaged. And it sounds exactly. like it sounds like that, that this film is a good, like you said, a beachhead uh, in doing this. Um, yes. I don't know if I, well, you know what I was going to say, maybe you should have explained Wilhelm Reich. No, you shouldn't. People listening to this show know who he was. Um okay. and I I found about, out about him I guess early in when I was doing uh the uh, excluded middle with my friends and uh joined the Wilhelm Reich Museum. I still have their their friends yeah. of the Wilhelm Reich Museum card from 1994 or 3, wow. I think. Which it is a great museum. Yeah, not that long ago, but yeah, that, that's how I found they were selling those contact with space books one time. Oh, don't even get me started on that, you rat. <laughs> okay, I'll yeah. stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. <laughs> no, too late. Too late. My entire t time on your show is now ruined. Remember <laughs> that I could have gotten that book when it was still on sale for a human price. Oh, woe is me. I'm lamenting. <laughs> uh, well, I, I went there, and it's funny. They have all these different books um, that are out of print that are in – they have yes. uh, 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 photocopies of them. They're selling them for yeah. like $40, $50 a piece, which was yeah. kind of amazing to me. It is. 
But the fact is, for really specialty scholars, books like Contact with Space, which you can't find a copy for less than $1,000, a good Xerox copy of that book, crucial to my library, has been for decades. Well, what do you uh, think of that book? I mean, it, it, it impinges directly upon things that we're interested in. Oh, I, I think it's it's one of the most courageous and insightful books ever written in the history of scientific inquiry. I also think that of the 18 or so books available written by Dr. Reich and more coming out as um, the archive continues uh, uh, to, well, um, the material is there. Um, but I I think it's probably the worst introduction to Dr. <laughs> Reich's work that any oh, no, reader it's, it's for have. specialists. <laughs> Holy well, it's it's basically the culmination of more than thirty-five years of studies on how energy functions. And um, superficial critics of Reich's will say, "Well, he was you know a flippity jibbity. He went from uh, cellular research to interest in cancer to Freudian therapy to healthy child raising to weather systems. He was all over the place. Well, no, he was one place. Yeah, it and was finally how, the UFOs, actually. How energy functions, and it took him right into his UFO observations uh, of the early 50s. Um, no, it makes brilliant sense, and um, again, I've rarely read a book by anybody with a scientific background that literally says... I demand the right to ask absolutely outrageous questions, to raise unnerving possibilities, because I am a person of science, and I demand the right to make these inquiries, thinking out loud, even at the risk of people saying, oh, gosh, you know, what a silly thing to say. Um, the book was published posthumously uh, a month or so after uh, he died. Oh, I but didn't know I that. Yes, yes. Um, I reread it at least in part every year or so because I have to have a certain facility in going over um, the history of his UFO observations superimposed on the cloud busting, the weather modification work um, to be able to tell the story with accuracy and respect for the parts of it that sound so outrageous that they sound like they're exaggerations or confabulation, and they're not. They're very well documented, multiply witnessed, uh, and recorded dutifully in numerous journals by individuals that were working with him at the time. Um, no, I, I think it's great that the museum uh, keeps the old material, much of it, that was burned in government incinerators mm -hmm. because of the ke the catch-22 of the FDA at the time. Orgone energy can't be real. Doesn't His devices don't plug into anything. There's no gasoline engines or whatever. Therefore, he's a quack. Therefore, we've got to keep an eye on him and bring him down if we can. Well, there's an American tragedy right there and a scientific one that we can devote part of another show too, as yeah. I 
See, we're coming into the home stretch here. Yeah, actually, there's a couple listeners uh, that said that the, they think Reich went a little bit crazy at the end, and that stuff is uh, probably not representative of most of his work. And uh, uh, I don't have the wherewithal to argue with you about it. I just look at it as an incredible piece of history and interesting chapter in Reich's work. And I still try to understand 100% of what he's saying in there. And without reading a lot of his earlier books, it's a little or knowing the entire uh, background of it, it's harder for me yeah. to understand. Well, we can do a show around that in future. And, um, you know, to use the old phrase, you don't have to be a paranoid to know that somebody is following you. <laughs> um, the FDA spent a considerable amount of money starting in 47 to find some way to bring him down to get one single patient. Uh, in the therapeutic method that he devised, that he had to accuse him of quackery, to accuse any of the other physicians that he had trained to do medical orgone therapy uh, of quackery, nobody ever complained. But ultimately, a, a very vicious woman with an agenda named Mildred Edie Brady uh, wrote an article that um, was the first of the really vicious character assassination articles that colors a lot of people's thinking uh, about him, you know, what he became. Was he crazy? Uh, not easy to settle in a short amount of time. But, yes, he had a great deal to be concerned about toward the end of his life. No question about it. Yeah. I'm I'm answering people while I'm listening to you. Um, uh huh. Okay, we've got. I guess we've got about four minutes left. In case, especially if you want to be able to get what is it's almost it's uh, twelve fifty six where you are, right? It is. Yeah. Um, I had to. It's funny. I've got about ten questions here. I think I asked you three of them. <laughs> Let's go for some others. Okay. <laughs> What to you is the most, um, for your personal taste, your development, is a uh, case that affected you the most? Well, um, even if I it's a personal my, one. Yeah, I guess my sisters, um, more than anything, um, we shared a sighting together as youngsters, and she had what I would now characterize as archetypical, sometimes word-for-word -word memories of, well, quite a number of hundred of people that I've, I've met with, spent time with, studied their cases, worked with in great part through Bud Hopkins when I worked as his assistant over all those years. Um, the Travis Walton UFO incident, uh, I think, is one of the best documented. Um, and the best organized in terms of what we can study and what we can learn. Maybe the greatest research tools there are Travis's book, Fire in the Sky, and Jennifer Stein's remarkable documentary, Travis, The True Story. Um, the Betty and Barney Hill uh, UFO incident abduction case uh, so brilliantly uh, written about by quite a number of UFO scholars over the years and most recently um, by um, Kathleen Martin and Stanton T. Friedman. Uh, Stan, of course, probably the senior, most highly visible, most um, respected 
single person in the work at this time, uh, in part because of tremendous longevity and being in there for more than 50 years, maybe close to 60 now. Um, And Kathleen, who um, is one of our now, especially with Bud Gahn and John Mack, uh, she and her other writing partner, Denise Stoner, for me, are they are two of the all time best abduction researchers ever in the history of the phenomena and do good and important work uh, around, you know, her, her aunt and uncle's case for sure, but other cases as well. Um, I think Roswell, although, um, you know, it's almost grown so large in uh, its legend and myth qualities that it's sort of in a, in a, class by itself there are those of us who feel that it is you know the crash of a truly anomalous machine from parts unknown other people that feel that it is uh, uh, a crash of a machine very much from the earth Um, and that debate will continue on I expect as long as we do Mm -hmm. yeah it's to me Roswell's like the Kennedy assassination you're never no matter how many uh, (laughs) things are released on it we're never ever ever going to be able to come to an absolute final conclusion about what what happened there which yeah i really don't care personally. interesting point yeah, yeah i got it mm-hmm. uh we're at 10 o'clock um unless there's a pressing thing that you want to discuss uh, uh and take this a little bit further you uh i i will have to thank you so much for being on again and uh talking about um everything I mean, I, I I really didn't. I, when we started this talk, I really wanted to uh, say, look, let's. And we did this. I want to steer away from the UFO thing as long as possible, and then we'll kind of ease our way into it like a hot bath. Yeah. And we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I hope you don't get to do that much on on most shows. I don't, and it's again one of the reasons why I always enjoy being your guest, and I hope that. Um, your audience liked um, uh, our, our brainstorming here well enough that I'll get invited back and we can pick up where we left off and can continue on solving the secrets of the universe and acknowledging the <laughs> ones that we can't solve. <laughs> You're always welcome, Peter. What, what song would you like to hear to end, end out the show? Uh, Anything. It doesn't have to be UFO. In fact, it's, if it's not UFO related, it's great. I, at the beginning of the Two, uh, four hours ago, I actually played like five UFO songs out of my collection of about, I don't know, somewhere around 100. <laughs> wow. every, time I, every time I see one, I grab it. I've got almost 100 now. I guess. Um, wow, you have me at a disadvantage here. That's okay. Uh, or or you can you know you can pick it and I'll just add it later. That, that's happened before too. You do have the bird singing, hey, Mr. Spaceman? Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, always a favorite of mine. Although ground control to Major Tong right now would be ideal. Do you want to hear the David Bowie version or the Chris Hadfield version that he plays in the International Space Station? I do want. I do want to hear the David Bowie version. Okay, uh, Space Oddity. Yeah. I just watched the um, or most of a documentary about David Bowie's last tour, and it was heartbreaking. Ah, what a great talent. What Mm -hmm. a great talent. 
Okay, well, here's uh, Space Oddity by David Bowie. And thank you so much, Peter Robbins, for being on everything we talked about. Congratulations on your dad's book. Eminently readable, a lot of fun. (laughs) And thanks for sending it to me. I'm delighted to. A big hug to you. Looking forward to speaking to you soon. And um, make sure you're strapped in when you jump off the cliff. Okay. (laughs) I will. Thanks, Peter. You bet. All right. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven. Sing countdown engines on three, two, check ignition and may God's love be with you. Something